You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Before we begin, um, you know, it's uh, customary, at least in respect when I do things, to to open with an invocation. Um, Let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Word, and the Thought. Amen. Divine Beloved, grant that this presentation may serve for all of us a mirror to better see ourselves and the sacred flame. That through looking at the life of your church, the saints which inspire it and the tradition which sustains it, we be more, that we may be more closely knit to the divine, to each other, and to ourselves. Amen. Uh, people seem to, for whatever reason, want to know more about the guy doing the thing. Um, and that would be me, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself and uh, how I came to the Apostolic Joanite Church. Uh, in or around the year uh, 1999, I had found myself uh, kind of adrift on the sea of spirituality and religion. Um, previously, I had spent a significant time engaging um, less than constructively, uh, better living through chemistry, as we call it, that's what we'll call it. <laughs> and after which I found myself with uh, new priorities. Typically, at least in the in the you know in movies and TV shows, when people make a, a sharp turn um, around, especially after a bad time, people are known to say, "Well, you know, I, I found Jesus or had a had a conversion experience." Um, on my end, however, I had no such experience. Um, it wasn't a case of finding uh, something that I didn't have, but uh, a case of discovering what was already there. Uh, the experience, of course, has a name. Uh, I call it gnosis, and so do so do most of us. I'd already counted myself a Christian, uh, though I used different language for it as I went along. Um, you know, starting off, of course, in the uh, the, the church of my father, so to speak, um, uh, rather of my grandfather, being in the Dutch Reformed tradition, Calvinist, uh, and then later on, I kind of you know progressed, if you want to call it a progression, into. Uh, Anglo-Catholicism with all the conservative joy that it came with. Um, but the idea of the Christos and the Logos being at the, at the center of things wasn't new to me. Um, the only thing that was new, however, was the life-changing reality of the actual experience. Before, of course, it was an intellectual exercise. You know, I went to catechism classes, you know, read history books. Uh, but this, you know, this was where it began to, to leap off the uh, page. Uh, at that point in time, I had already had a, a couple years of esoteric practice and exploration and dabbling in spiritual traditions under my belt. As anyone who practices those paths know, uh, they tend to generate insight and understanding all their own. In my case, you know, I spiritually burnt my hands a little bit. Uh, it's easy to treat the esoteric path as another gadget in a spiritual tool belt, um, detached and at arm's length and kind of ready to go when you need it. Uh, however, um, as you will come to understand in a direct way, and I hope you're all joining us tomorrow um, for the workshops that follow this one, they need to be integrated more and become a, become a way of life. So at the ripe old age at which I found myself, uh, my tool belt was packed with all sorts of interesting bits. I had given respectable time to different systems and approaches, at least as much as somebody in their late teens and early 20s could do. And uh, I have to say, I made a pretty good student. <laughs> Pretty good, a little bit of here, a little bit of there. Um, I had just enough tools and tricks and, and bits uh, to know that really I hadn't traveled that far and I had a long distance yet to go. Uh, 
Um, you know, I had a mind for uh, Kabbalistic correspondences, for, you know, things like uh, the Norse tradition, for runes. Um, you know, and I could read it, write it pretty well, actually. But in all these things, and looking at all these things, and, and dabbling and wandering and, and, you know, looking under many different stones, you know, you, the, the idea of esotericism, of course, is to affect change in accordance with the will. But I hadn't really mastered the whole change yourself bit with it. It seemed, you know, that I had moved into another intellectual exercise where, you know, well, this is nice to look at. It, it, in, you know, instead of going from uh, something neat to look at behind an altar, it was something neat to look at that I could hold myself, but really not that much different. Esotericism didn't really change the way I looked at life. Life ended up doing that for itself. And when I was done, the way esoteric practice looked also changed. Um, the life events that I had and the forcible reflection that they engendered, kind of like getting hit over the head, um, reshaped every side of that coin because you, there really is no difference between the esoteric and the exoteric. It had given me a new spiritual impulse in the same way that, you know, Jesus gave Lazarus a new spiritual impulse by saying, get the hell up. I was fortunate to survive those events, but greater than my sense of how the hell did I make it out of that alive and relatively sane was a sense of gratitude and awareness of just how many people there are out there navigating life with little in the way of people or landmarks to help guide them. So I came out of it resolved to be the person I never had during that time period. Um, not smart enough to be a doctor or, or steady enough, if any of you guys were paying close attention this morning. <laughs> you really wouldn't want me as your surgeon, trust me. Um, and, you know, not patient enough to, to be a, a school teacher. Though most of the teachers I know are kind of impatient, but they're great people, sorry. Uh, I considered the priesthood because, I, you know, I felt I could listen, you know, and help share the load. Uh, uh, Monsignor Jordan Stratford is, has a great analogy for priesthood as being a, a Sherpa, a mountain guide, that ultimately the, the path you walk is your own and you do have to walk it. However, there can be people who help show you different paths you can take and, of course, carry some of the load. I thought, okay, I can do that. Um, you know, and, 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 and at that point, you know, I, I knew, you know, I knew then, you know, just as I imagine many of you know now, that that, uh, you know, I was a Gnostic, not a world-hating, baby-eating, eschaton-stoking, let-me-out-of-this-body type of guy, but someone with spiritual clarity could distinguish between systems and sources and see the divine in themselves and in the eyes of, of their fellow human beings. Of course, this, you know, this kind of vision only takes you so far in life. The, the world is full of people who become their own visionaries, revelators, and what have you. So now that you've had some nice experiences, what are you going to do with and about it? Um, like my mention of knowing enough to realize the things that you don't know or the distance you haven't covered, um, these experiences, these co this, this context that I felt called to do needed its own venue or place. Um, it didn't just need it, I needed it. I needed a place to go. Um, in, in Buddhism, the triple jewel consists of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It isn't a case of Buddha, Dharma, and, you know, if we've got some time and if you're not busy, maybe you would like to be the Sangha. It's the third leg, community is the third leg of a very important stool, without which stuff just falls over. Wherever two or more are gathered, 
there I am also, says the, says the logo, so as we heard this morning. You really don't get the there I am also with zero or one, um, though I know some folks like Bray who do crazy things with computers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I found the context I was looking for in the AJC, um, but before I found that, I, I found a renewal of my esoteric practice through an esoteric order. Um, searching through the quagmire that is the internet, uh, I found uh, uh, writings by my predecessor looking for folks to, to get involved in a thing called the Friary. It was Christian and Gnostic in character, and while I was actually looking for a Gnostic church, uh, I found the outline of what this, this you know, random guy on the internet was proposing to be right in line with the experiences I'd had. So I decided to, uh, you know, drop them line, write a complete stranger, and, and uh, you know, say, hey, can you, can you help me out? Interest turned to enthusiasm, and it wasn't long before I had the opportunity to sit down and talk directly with him. I was pretty insistent, you know, do you got some phone time? Can we talk? You know, and I think, I think he probably just picked up the phone to get me out of the way. Um, and we, we, we kind of go from there. I discovered that he was a Gnostic bishop, and he did this crazy thing called a, a Gnostic church. Um, and not only was he a Gnostic bishop, but he also, you know, pursued that path through the context of something he called the Apostolic Joanite Church. Uh, I think if he was ever disappointed that a large part of my fervor found itself redirected to the AJC as opposed to what I originally signed up for, um, he never said so. And it was from there I entered into a Reading or for Orders program, which can be best thought of as a kind of apprenticeship program for the priesthood. Um, now that I've told you a little bit uh, about my wacky journey, and you know I've left out all the swear words, uh, bottles of booze, chain smoking, and bad movies, <laughs> I want to tell you a little bit more um, uh, about the Joanite tradition itself. Uh, first of all, an uh, important disclaimer, and this is why usually I, I bow out or, you know, kind of duck behind Dr. Bean every time there's a lecture or, or thing to be done. I'm, I'm not a scholar, an academic, or a hist historian, or an archaeologist, or, or anything <laughs> like that. I'm, I'm a priest, and so um, everything I'm going to present here, um, you know, my perspective, uh, some of my studies, some of my notes, um, you know, I've... I do it from the perspective of a pastoral value, uh, something you can take home, something you can think about. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a few things where my readings or my understandings may not be up to date or perfect. There's only so many <laughs> books and documentaries I can watch and cram in, you know, on the plane <laughs> before coming here. Um, so that being said, there are a great many things that are likely my conjecture and my speculation. Uh, which are in turn based on conjecture and speculation. Uh, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're a bit soft in the back. Hmm? Your, your voice is a bit soft in the back. Okay. I will go louder. Thank you very much. And I feel bad for the people in the front row. <laughs> well, you can take it. My point is, within the limits of my historical knowledge and with the tools of my own spiritual experience, as well as having the benefit of the experience of, of folks here and beyond, um, the point here is to paint a, a plausible picture of the early community of John and its views and its struggles, and trace that stream of knowledge and practice through the centuries to the present day and how it informs in sh and shapes and is in turn informed and shaped uh, by the Joanite community here. 
initiated by the Baptist, transmitted by the Apostle, and restored in the modern era, the Apostolic Joanite Church enacts the Joanite tradition through an esoteric, Gnostic, and Christian path of spiritual understanding and self-discovery. Ignited in community, nurtured by individual practice and fed by service, the sacred flame of Gnosis embodied in the tradition of the Holy Saints John lives anew through the work of the AJC. How's that for an elevator? Yeah. <laughs> That's the nutshell summary of what we do. But between those bits is uh, some juicy goodness, some schism, some quarrel, some vision, and some resolution. And I think one of the reasons why the story of the community of the beloved disciple resonates so deeply um, with myself and with others is, you know, not because it's, you know, grand or filmed by James Cameron or any kind of things like that, because it's very human. These are the type, types of arguments and mistakes that we can make, and we probably do make, and we probably will make. I'm sure it'll all be Tim's fault. <laughs> The large portion of uh, the material I'm going into comes from, uh, comes from the Joanine Hypothesis, which is by uh, uh, Father Raymond Brown, who wrote a book called The Community of the Beloved Disciple. Uh, you know, uh, now passed on, he was pretty much considered um, the foremost Roman Catholic expert on Joanine readings and scholarship, um, so much so that every subsequent uh, book since his time um, references and quotes and, and points back to his work. Uh, the de despite some of it being 20, 30, 40 years old, um, including what I'm going to share with you, that it still uh, has a significant impact. And a lot of the, a lot of the theories and views and conclusions he came to um, are still shared by scholars in the present day. Uh, I was introduced to this work by my predecessor, uh, who kind of stumbled on it by accident. I think he liked the title, but I mean, it is my predecessor, so he could have liked the pictures. I'm not too sure. But um, he introduced this to me, and I, I think the, you know, the surprising thing for both of us is because we had already been serving and working in the AJC, presenting based on our own experience uh, a vision of what a Joanite community would look like. And it's kind of a weird thing to turn around and read scholarship at the time that looks like what you're doing, you know, trapped in amber. To, to see so many ideas of things that you're already doing um, reflected in scholarship without, without knowing otherwise. We, you know, this is something we didn't know because, you know, sadly we were behind the times. So, now, I'm going to split this up in, in, in four parts. I've already gone over the first. Uh, everything you ever wanted to know about the patriarch but were too sober to ask. Uh, and then part one, we're going to cover the Joanite community itself. Uh, part two, we're going to see, well, this, this AJC thing, this thing we've all gathered here for this weekend, how does that line up with, with the early community? Uh, part three is to look a little bit at the beloved disciple as a kind of spiritual model. What kind of qualities did this ideal disciple have? Um, you know, in, in other words, how far do I have yet to go? And finally, uh, we have uh, a question and answer session, if you have questions, uh, where I dump most of the work on Mar Thomas.
You got that? Four stages. The, there, there are four stages. The first covers community origins, and this happens from about 40 AD to about 80 AD. Of course, none of these things are perfect or exact. This is all, this is all hypothesis. Any questions, by the way, so far? No? Nope. Uh, stage two is about the, uh, about the time of the writing of the gospel. And of course, that's about 90 AD. And uh, most scholars that I'm aware of uh, pretty much they agree on that. Uh, stage three is the epistles, which is a series of letters written um, by members of the community to other members of the community um, as a kind of, oh, by the way. Uh, and stage four is where everything falls apart. Now, and of course, this is tricky because we're, 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 working, we're working from the gospel, but it's generally... Um, the opinion of most scholars that I've encountered that uh, far simply from being a spiritual narrative or a, uh, a kind of historical narrative of, of the person we would call Jesus, that the Gospel of John actually, between its lines, tells the story and development of the community of John. Uh, that you can, you can kind of read into it, that the, that the particular things that are highlighted and talked about um, are put in there for the specific purpose of you know, reflecting or as a byproduct, byproduct uh, reflect what actually happened to the group of people who, who composed it. The earliest, the earliest adherents of the Jonite community, of course, are regular Jews. You know, regular observant, observant Jews, and they worship in the synagogue. Um, they're not different from their parent tradition, um, except for one thing, of course, that they view Jesus as being different. Um, as, as most Christians would do at that time. They viewed him as being the Messiah in a very, in a very material sense of expectation, the anointed, the king, a leader. And they felt that, uh, that Jesus met expectations for what, uh, for what the Jewish Messiah would be. Um, it is very likely that they were former disciples of John the Baptist. Um, unfortunately, uh, history and writings are, are silent as to... Um, whether or not all the adherents of John the Baptist were, were comfortable with the new movement as it would uh, develop. One of, the reasons, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why this is dated from where it is, and you'll notice I put a different date actually because I came across two dates. One said 40 to 80 AD, one said 50 to 80 AD. I ended up settling on the most conservative number, um, but forgot to include that in my previous slide. Um, because of the accuracy of place names uh, referred to in the gospel, it is very likely uh, that some of it was composed before the destruction of the temple, before the Jewish revolt in 66 AD. So here we have now, just like the, just like the, the rest of the developing Christian community, um, we have folks who, who feel that uh, Jesus is the Messiah, you know, this is somebody they, they, want to, they want to follow, but he is a man. You know, he is a leader. Um, you know, a lot of the ideas around divinity and son of God have not yet developed within that community. But then something changes. A second group of adherents come into the body of uh, what would be the community of the beloved disciple. And as we know from uh, Bishop Tim's, I was about to call you Father Tim, uh, Bishop Tim's lecture yesterday, uh, you know, talking about the, that the temple was a, was a large 
a large issue and, of course, a large part of the lives of, of everyone um, at that time. This, of course, having an anti-temple bias is significant, that people who were not a fan of ritual or temple worship came into the group of, of the people who would, follow with the, who would follow with the beloved disciple, Jesus. Uh, likely, uh, scholars suspect that it was actually Samaritans. One of the reasons why they suspect this, of course, is John 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and converts her. And then from there, her experience with Jesus at the well, um, she runs back to her village and goes, hey guys, hey guys, I met this awesome guy. Um, given the comments in John 4 about worshiping in spirit, um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and things like that, it, re it reflects an anti-temple bias. That now things are going to begin, at least for this community, to move from the realm of ritual worship, of sacrifice, you know, of a central location um, to something that is very, very individual, very personal. Uh, stage two takes place around 90 AD, and that's the date I have for everything, so no wonky dates. This is the Gospel era. This is when the Gospel of John itself was written. And uh, uh, no matter how spiritual, no matter how well intended, um, it's kind of like when you post things on the internet, you know, when I, when I post things about the, the AJC, you know, congratulations, we just had this big event. There will always be some people that will, you know, see it as a bit of propaganda. And, and the Gospel of John was, was a bit of propaganda, not only, you know, for their own benefit, for the ben but the, for the benefit of everybody else, um, if such a thing can be said, because it defines their relation to outside, outsiders. The Gospel of John says, as a group, this is who we are. If you're not doing this, if you're not a part of this, well, then you're kind of, you know, you're, you're out here. Um, and there are six or seven different groups that you, can, that you can pick out between the lines of the Gospel of John as being identified um, by this community and kind of picked on, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, folks like themselves, folks who don't accept Jesus. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a list, I apologize. But um, essentially, it, it identifies a seri series of groups and basically gives the community's opinion on it, how, how they relate. Followers of John the Baptist, for example. Um, now, the second group, I mentioned the second group and the anti-temple bias, where things begin to, to move out of a central location, out of, out of a ritual idea, you know, and uh, for, for lack of a less fluffy phrase, in, into the heart a bit. Um, as a result of that, because, because God, because Jesus as a, as a prophet, as a Messiah of God, because these things begin to become more personal, they also become more spiritual. And as they become more spiritual, um, we encounter something called high Christology. Now Christology in Christian theology, of course, is the study of the nature of Christ. And every major dispute, every major disagreement, Every, every, every argument in Christianity is about Christ. Um, unlike us, where we argue about clothes. So, <laughs> um, and because the nature of Christ, what we say about Christ is what we say about ourselves. You know, was, was Christ God? Was Christ man? You know, and so Christ's relation to God is kind of our relation to God. So it has a huge 
impact on how people see themselves in terms of salvation, in terms of spiritual and personal development. So as a result of this anti-temple bias, things get turned up a notch. And now we're not simply dealing with, with a messiah or a leader or somebody who's going to overthrow Rome. We're dealing with God himself, with the Son of God, with you know, uh, walking the earth and breaking bread and cursing fig trees. <laughs> Unfortunately, the parent tradition of this community uh, was not so happy with that development. Um, and they said, you know what? If you're going to believe that, if you're going to adhere to that, if you're going to preach that, you need to get out. You need to, you need to, you are no longer, uh, you're no longer welcome to worship with us. Now there is a distinction, you know, between, between Jew and Christian. And one of the things that's interesting, I should note, and, you know, you, you heard of it about it in some of the write-ups for, um, has everybody here seen The Passion of the Christ? Good for you for not watching. <laughs> um, the Passion of the Christ takes the Gospel of John very, very literally. And the problem with the Gospel of John, when you take it very, very literally, when you just take it as as you know, um, simple statements, is that it comes across as very anti-Semitic. And so it, it, you know, it, it's very funny when we say, well, you know, we're the Joanite church, we're big on John, we're big on the Gospel of John. Well, isn't the Gospel of John anti-Semitic? How do you explain that? Why does it always seem to be that Jesus is always like, those Jews are bad? Well, here's the thing. Um, as I mentioned, that you know, between, the between the lines in the Gospel, you have the life of the community uh, reflected, um, the folks who put together the gospel weren't exactly happy with their parent tradition because as a result of their expanding and, and, and evolving beliefs, they were told they couldn't worship. They were told they couldn't, they, they couldn't participate. So as a part of that, they turned around and said, these guys are bad. They, they kicked us out. So that's where you, that's where you, get, the, uh, that's where you get the idea. I mean, the, the idea, however, that there are bits in there that are anti-Semitic is kind of funny because it's Jews complaining about other Jews, right? It's, it's, it's not some kind of outside group saying, you know, this, this whole race of people is bad. It's, it's their own people, and they no longer feel welcome. So that's where the source of, of, of the anger and the animosity comes from. So they get booted out of the synagogue, and uh, this is reflected in, in a few places in Scripture, describing that, well, you know, you, you can't worship anymore um, because you follow Jesus. Now, the interesting thing, of course, how we know that some of this is written backwards, how we know that, that uh, the community of John got kicked out of the synagogue and, and as a part of it um, you know, reflected in the writings is that at the time of Jesus, at the time of the community of the beloved disciple in its origins, they hadn't been kicked out of the synagogue. That's something that happened much later. So when they turn around to write their history, they write it backwards in time to say that this conflict we have had with these other people who are actually us, um, this conflict that we had, it's been going on the whole time. And that's why we're right to be mad. So they wrote it into their history. They made it, they made it a, you know, a, <laughs> a part of their thing, which is actually quite unfortunate. Now, when people get kicked out of things, you know, when it's, when it's closing time and you can't do anything else, um, unless you're ready to nap, you're probably pretty unhappy. 
But before we get to before we get to the the unhappy, let's look why a little bit uh, a little bit more why they got kicked out. Successful evangelism. They're they're now they're bringing in they're bringing in other people. It's like now they're not just bringing in um, other Jews. They're bringing in Samaritans, and of course, Jews didn't like Samaritans in that day. It's not. Uh, uh, there's there's a funny skit you should watch from Mitchell and Webb. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But. Um, you know they weren't they weren't big on Samaritans at least in in the, in the context of that time period in the gospel. Um, so you know you don't exactly necessarily want uh, you know one group of your brothers and sisters bringing in other groups that you, you don't really like. It's like hey they did they didn't pay their dues they you know they didn't go through their hazing or they don't have their membership card. Um, did you want to check with us before you admit these people? Uh, purge reaction to the destruction of the temple. Um, often when things go terribly wrong, you look for somebody to blame. Uh, you know, no different than uh, Augustine writing a defense of Christianity, um, you know, uh, on, you know, barbarian invasions. Well, Rome wouldn't have been sacked if it wasn't for those nasty Christians. <laughs> you know, um, I do hope I have that right. You're the Augustine guy. Yeah. Um, so the temple gets destroyed. And of course, this is this is this is the center of worship. This is the center of religious life, and uh, we're not too happy. We need to to pin it on somebody. How about those guys get out? And of course, as I mentioned, the disagreement with the high Christology. You know, what are these? You know, what are these other folks smoking? I mean, now they're saying this guy, you know, in in sandals is, uh, you know, is not simply some kind of revolutionary leader. He's actually God. Which is which is a pretty big deal. I mean, we can we can turn around and and we can say you know okay well this is something that we're very accustomed to that we're very used to we're used to hearing about Jesus as God we we have for the last two thousand years, but what if I turned around and said Bray was God? How would you would say okay I can see Bray he's sitting right there, there's no halo, there's no miracles he looks pretty normal to me. You know, and what if I said, okay, well, you've, you've, now you've got to follow Bray. There would probably be a little bit of reaction. Sorry, Bray, I realize you're a really nice guy, but... Yeah. So, the community responds. And now, they get critical of, they get critical of, the, of the folks that came with them, who kind of are still, you know, a little bit wishy-washy, uh, you know, on the fence. They're, they're like, you know, rah, rah, Jesus is our man. Just don't ask me to say that in public. You know, so now, because they've had this split with their parent tradition, they're looking for, you know, who else may not like them. You know, for, for who else may have a problem. So now the, the, the lukewarm followers of Jesus are, are being picked on. Um, now, enter the beloved disciple. The, belo the beloved disciple, historically, scholarly, academically, um, uh, is unknown. Uh, traditionally, we identify that with John the Apostle. It's convenient. It's nice. Tells a great story. But in truth, not necessarily the case. The beloved disciple is a part of the group that goes to a higher Christology and helps everybody else to make this transition. Hey, this Jesus guy really is God. Hey, Bray, this guy Bray, he's really, really good. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
So how high of a Christology are we talking about? Just exactly how God was Jesus in the gospel. Um, Jesus cannot ask a simple question without a footnote explaining that he already knew the answer. He's pretty smart. Uh, Jesus cannot choose a follower who goes bad without an insistence that, yeah, I knew this was going to happen from the beginning. It's okay. Uh, Jesus cannot utter a prayer of petition without the assurance that he's really just doing it for bystanders' sake and educate him to the truth that the Father actually already hears him. You know, he, he's just kind of picking up the phone and going, hello, so that everybody sees, you know, that he's on the phone. Uh, Jesus cannot ask that at the hour of his pa passion that it pass from him, as he does in other Gospels, because he's doing this on purpose. He knows what he's doing. The, the, the crucifixion, the, the, the sacrifice, the, um, the trial, the arrest, it's all part of his plan. He's in control, absolutely. Uh, the passion is not narrated in a way that places him at the mercy of his captors because he has the power to lay down his life and take it up again. So obviously uh, this isn't somebody who's this isn't somebody who's being pushed around. This is somebody who's moving the pieces on the board. This is, this is how they feel uh, uh, about Jesus, that all these things are put into the text to remind you, in case you didn't know, that Jesus is divine. Now, before the third stage, of course, we have, uh, in between each of these stages, there are events that kind of change and redirect the course of the community. Um, now, of course, the Jonine community, uh, as in, in the previous stage, has been rejected by their parent tradition. So in response, they say, well, we need more people. I guess we kind of can't go back to where we used to worship and get those guys to come out. Now we're going to take in people that are completely different and in come the Gentiles, everybody else. Um, one of the things that points to the fact that there were uh, non-Jews coming into the community is because the gospel stops to explain terms that would already be known to Jews, like rabbi, for example. Uh, a Jewish reader would already know what rabbi means. And part of, part of the Gentile group, of course, when you, when you have around there is, is Romans and Greeks. And uh, because those, those pretty much are the Gentiles at that point for, for a majority of, of, you know, in terms of majority of the population. Um, and it's interesting because in the gospel, when the Greeks start showing up, Jesus says, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Ministry is at an end. Um, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And of course, um, this is, this is the sudden stop is highlighted in, in John 12. Stage three is where things get soap opera-ish because it wasn't before. Greek contact brings out universalistic aspects of, of Johannine belief. Now we're not dealing with a, a particular people or a particular group of people that will be saved. The whole world can be saved through him. And this is augmented with a bit of dualism that says, you know, by the whole world they mean everybody who agrees with us. And everybody who's not in that thing, well, maybe not. Um, it is then that now they have distinguished themselves so much um, with their theology, with their opposition to their parent tradition, that now they're standing on their own. However, you know, uh, uh, 
it's kind of like uh, I'm, I'm sure you maybe maybe not on this side of the water, but I know in North America there's a saying that the the rest of your life resembles high school. That uh, no, you know, no matter. <laughs> I was looking like what? Uh, uh, that uh, you know, things tend to be a little bit dramatic and a little bit emotional, and a little bit intense, no matter how old you get. And it's certainly true for this community because. You know, um, right after they establish their own identity, right after they draw a line, you know, in the sand that says, "This is us." Good people here, bad people there. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. Um, they start arguing among each other. Well, you know, what happens when you lack a common enemy? You turn, you turn on yourself. So now they're arguing over Christology. And of course, things like the Eucharist. I know uh, uh, one thing I mentioned during Tim's excellent talk yesterday um, is that some of these things are reflected in the gospel. Of course, this is how we know about the life of the community by reading the gospel, because their struggles come, come off the pages. You have a group of disciples that follow with Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, you know, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at the Greek, for that, he's literally talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. <laughs> that's that's you know literally to kind of gnaw on actually, and you know some of these disciples say this is a hard teaching. Who can bear it? And we're leaving. You know we're out of here. So they go, and this is reflected. So this is this is where that reflects the split. That says okay now this group is splitting into into factions. Um, it's also believed that uh, some of the Greeks that came in as a result of the Samaritans are converting more Samaritans. It's a big conversion party. Um, the Gospel of John, as I mentioned earlier, defines the community versus the outsiders, versus the world. Now, at this point in time, at 100 AD, you now have the epistles, the letters that, that community leaders are writing um, to members of their own community uh, to warn them about other members of their own community. So the Gospel of John defines the essential community versus the outsiders, versus the world, but the epistles are directed at insiders. Um, and it should be noted, as, as I mentioned yesterday in Tim's lecture, that the Gospel is first used by heterodox Christians um, who would become Gnostic. It, it is first used by the, the quote-unquote bad guys. Um, we had it first. We had it. I'm sorry. Um, later, later, of course, the proto-orthodox, what Raymond Brown calls the the great church, the apostolic church, the mainstream church, um, adopts it. But the only reason they adopt it is because it's kind of been modified, toned down, and explained by the letters that are written to complain about other members of the community, to say that um, you know. The Gospel of John presents this particular theology. Here's how we see this theology, as opposed to those other guys who are also using this book, who interpret it badly. And there was even some debate at the, the councils defining the canon whether or not to include both the apocalypse and the absolutely, gospel. absolutely. So in comes the fun times. The community splits in two. One goes towards the proto-orthodox and the other eventually towards Gnosticism, which Raymond Brown calls the secessionists. Each of them takes the gospel with them. They may not like each other, but they still like their story. 
because each of them can interpret it in a way that reflects their own beliefs and their own, uh, and their own community. Let's take a little bit more of a, a detailed look on uh, the secessionist folks, the folks I call Joanite. I use Joanine to describe the folks who would go on to grow to become a member of the great church, and I use Joanite to describe the folks who would become Gnostic. Not scholarly by any stretch of the imagination. It's just to keep it straight in my head. So these guys obviously are big on Jesus. These guys are big on the fact that Jesus is big. Um, Jesus is so divine as to not be fully human, to be alien to the world, and that the, the, the act of his coming, the act of his incarnation, is enough to save everything. Um, there, there are four elements of the gospel that, at least in terms of our modern view looking back, would seem to be acceptable to Gnosticism, the high Christology, you know, the absolute divinity, um, the dualism, the us versus them, the determinism, Jesus is, is in control, the divine, divine over matter, and of course the descent itself. Now, when the Joanites actually go and, and you know, stumble full scale into heresy, um, you know, cut off, cut off from moderates, the successionists take the Joanite theology in a direction that would become completely Gnostic. It's kind of, um, when you look at, uh, uh, sorry, Americans, when you look at American politics, or <laughs> probably not, it's just the only one I can think of off the top of my head, but when you look at politics, any kind of politics, what, you know, what, what happens when the moderate voices uh, are gone, when the moderate voices aren't so loud, um, you know, when the, when the center no longer holds, the extreme becomes the center. And, you know, uh, in the case of our heroes here, they get a little bit more extreme. They're like, that volume that we already had up to, you know, 9 or 10, it's time to get Spinal Tap and turn it up to 11. Uh, so the pre-existence of Christ says not only did Christ exist before his incarnation, so did you. Everybody comes from the divine. It doesn't seem so e extreme to me. I actually think it's quite good. Um, but back then, of course, it would be a pretty big deal. Um, realized uh, eschatology, and eschatology is, is the study of the last things, um, more commonly known as uh, uh, the end times or for some folks, you know, left behind, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> There's a great uh, book out there. I haven't read it, but the reviews are fantastic. It's called, uh, it's called Kiss My Right Behind. So if you're ever looking for some humorous reading, there you go. Knowledge of the Logos, awareness of the Logos, the incarnation, the, the divine nature, um, experiential apprehension of that is what gives eternal life. So it isn't just a matter of, for God so loved the world, you know, that he, whomsoever believeth on him, is it has that connotation, it takes on that connotation of what uh, Bishop Tim was talking about in terms of faith, you know, and trust, or as I think it was Ralph that said, punch Jesus in the gut. You know, the <laughs> um, and that the context. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the other context was much more bloody and hard to explain. <laughs> I think it involved something about you know gaping wounds. Um, now, in the, in the gospel, of course, you you have something that's identified as the Paraclete, the Comforter, 
the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and Christ says, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to leave, but I'm sending you somebody in my place, you know, and, you know somebody that can take care of you. And that, and that of course, is, is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> so, um, so now we have, we have another interesting word, a Greek word called parousia. Uh, parousia means presence. Kind of like if uh, Her Majesty the Queen were to, to walk in from the back and say, praise God, sorry. Uh, if, 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 her, if Her Majesty the Queen was to walk in, you know, it would quickly spread through the room. Everybody would know it, and everybody would be on their feet because it's that presence. It's that it's that sense of being. It, it, it's the weight of it. So parousia means presence in the sense of in the sense of majesty. However, um, of course, words develop, get used, misused. They they change based on context and community. Parousia parousia is also uh, what we refer to as the second coming. I'm going back to that whole left behind thing. Um, and, you know, unlike, you know, rapturous end times where, you know, some guy in some part of the United States is predicting the end of the world and the return of Jesus, that the community, the, the Joannite Gnostics or would-be Gnostics, view the descent of the Holy Spirit as the return of Jesus. And, you know, saying that when you have this experience, when you have this experience of the divine, that's Christ coming back right there. And we have a little bit to say about those other guys. The Proto-Orthodox Joannine community, they're responsible. They're the whole reason why we have the Gospel of John. So we really can't give them too much trouble because we wouldn't be having this discussion without them. So uh, three chairs for the bad guys. <laughs> um, in return, as a part of that exchange, we give you the Gospel. Well, uh, as a part of being welcomed into, into that would-be larger church, into that more universal or Catholic church, um, they get structure and order. They, they get in line. They say, okay, we'll take your scripture. Um, you take our orders. I don't know if that's a good deal or not. Very true. So now that I've rambled for a half an hour or two, so now that you know a little bit about the story of how this community came together, split apart, and split apart again, how does this relate to us? You know, because there are a bunch of you know dusty guys from 2,000 years ago, and and I'm up here cracking bad jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, first, let's look at uh, let's look at Christology here. One could say we're high on Jesus. Actually, no, don't say that. <laughs> uh, so high Christology, pre-existence of Christ, pre-existence of humanity. In the Apostolic Joannite Church, of course, we call this the sacred flame, which isn't just the divine spark, but uh, as His Grace is, is fond of noting, it, it's something that's been developed, that's been fanned, that's been blown on to, to uh, conflagrate. And of course, the idea of the logos being one with God. This is this is uh, this is a huge thing for us. We're not too different um, than regular Christians in that regard, save for save for the sacred flame. Now, the Apostolic Joannite Church has a series of, of principles, uh, which is our, our statement of principles. It's nine principles that outline 
socially, theologically, and personally who, who we are as a group of people. And it isn't something that I wrote and said, okay, I'm telling you who you are. This is something where, you know, after having experienced the life of the church and talking to many of its members, I can turn around and say, this seems to be a good summary of who we're talking about. So this idea of a high Christology is reflected in, in our statement of principles, number, number four and five. And that being, we affirm that the Godhead is composed of three persons, which are one in substance. God the Father Almighty, the Son, or Logos Christos Sother, and the Holy Spirit, or Pneumahagion. And of course, statement five. We affirm that God guides us towards unity by the loving example of the incarnate Christ, manifested in the life of Jesus, and the ongoing experience of the Holy Spirit. So it isn't, you know, uh, spiritual life and spiritual majesty and power and the power of transformation is, you know, something that happens, you know, out there a long, long time ago. It's something that happens here, and it's very, very personal, and it's not legislated uh, uh, what, whatsoever. Incarnational theology. Of course, we place the focus on the, on the divinity rather than the humanity of Christ. Um, not to say that the, the, the humanity is, is unimportant. The humanity is how we are able to relate, how we're able to talk, to say, okay, um, this, is, this is a fellow in the story of the Gospels who broke bread, who lived among mankind in much the same way that, that uh, we do, you know, minus calming the storms. I haven't done that in a while. Um, the coming of the Logos, of course, is, is the significant part. It is, the incarnation is the thing that saves. That through that act of descent, that uh, divine drop in, in, the, in the pond, uh, that everything is sanctified because of it. Human life, material existence, um, you know, uh, every time I scratch my nose, you know, that, that, that everything becomes sacred, that life is sacred. And I've already read the, the uh, first two principles in this regard, to which we add the sixth. We affirm the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is built upon the message and the authority of the incarnate Christ, and that the same lives from age to age by the Holy Spirit and the stewardship of the successors of the apostles, of which Tim just became one. This is my favorite part. A realized eschatology that, of course, you know, that we're not looking towards some kind of cataclysmic, apocalyptic event where, you know, all the sheep are, you know, all, all the sheep are gonna be taken up to heaven and all the goats are barbecued by his grace. <laughs> you know, where, where, where the, the, the end of the world, so to speak, um, you know, that kind of experience, that trans transformative experience um, is a personal and an individual thing that continues to happen and is ongoing within your own spiritual life. That, of course, that knowing the Logos, uh, realization of the Logos, realization of that in, a, in an experiential way, um, in, a, in a personal way, I guess that you could kind of relate the difference between um, I know Karen versus I know Matt. One is knowing. One is a personal and direct knowing. The other is knowing about. So this is the kind of knowing that we're talking about. So that the realization, knowing the Logos, is the thing 
that opens you up to eternity. And that the sacrifice of the divine into limitations of matter you know, is, is what happens. This, this, is, this is reflected in our liturgy. Our liturgy mirrors what we view as the central spiritual event. The idea of the descent of God into something that is ordinary, um, whether it is bread or whether it is us. Um, and that the end of the world, so to speak, I'm using that as a substitute for eschatology, um, that it's not the end of the world, but the rebirth of it. That simply, that things transform. Um, and I guess it was uh, uh, Proust who said the, the and I, I was having this conversation just the other night with Stuart, um, that the true voyage of discovery lies not in seeing new lands, but in having new eyes. And so the whole universe, the whole world, um, transformed as a, as a result of this event, one person at a time. And, you know, most people, uh, a good friend of mine, Bishop Thomas Langley, is, is fond of saying, for most people, spiritual transformation is what happens in the parking lot outside of church every Sunday. We're talking about something a little bit more powerful. Uh, the, the Gospel of, of Philip in the Nag Hammadi uh, describes this when it says the world has become the aeon, the eternal realm. That things transform. It's not that things are, it's not that things are destroyed and rebuilt, is that you know everything gets a new, you know, chromy looking loss of paint. It becomes really, really nice. Now in this we have um, our second statement of principle. We affirm that every being contains the sacred flame, a spark of the divine and that the awareness of the sacred flame within constitutes the highest level of self-knowledge and the experience of God simultaneously. This act of awareness, which is held to be liberating, transcendent, and experiential, is called gnosis. Pneumatology. Pneuma, of course, referring to spirit. It actually sounds like some kind of bad operation. Uh, pneumatology, uh, going back to the Holy Spirit, the, the, the paraclete, or you know, one of these days I'm going to say parakeet, as, as well says. Um, the, same, the same role that Christ serves in terms of the Father and the Holy Trinity, that, that, the, that the Father, that God is something that we cannot understand or see directly in terms of traditional uh, Christianity, traditional theology, that the role that Jesus serves in relation to his father is, is uh, that of somebody who makes it comprehensible. You might not be able to see God, but you can see Jesus, and that's a, that's a digestible form. That's, that's God in a way that you can understand, in human form, uh, in, his, in his image, no less. Now, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, serves the same role with regard to the logos, and this is why we link the idea of the parousia, the presence, the second coming, um, with the experience of the paraclete. And of course, spirit, and this is an important one, because yesterday we talked about, uh, in our Jonah discussion, we talked about why uh, you know, so many people come here and why they find it refreshing, um, is the idea of you know, no, you, you know things that you must believe, no dogma that you must adhere to in order to participate, in order to be a member of the community. That spiritual experience of the Holy Spirit, spiritual experience of the divine, is what guides you. Not me, not his grace, not Bishop Tim, 
Certainly not Father Bray. Sorry. I love Bray. Bray's great. Excuse <laughs> So um, that it is your own spiritual experience, your you know the your own meeting of the divine, your own path that serves as your guide. That is where you get your teaching. That is where you get your understanding. How what how we relate to that is that you bring it and you reflect it in community. But the reason why we have a church community is because it is built, just like the statement of principles, it is built on that collective experience. It is built on that collective wisdom. So the experience of the paraclete is a type of parousia or second coming. The logos, Christ, returning through the paraclete for the individual believer. I've already read you, uh, uh, I've already read you five and six. And there's, there's another thing actually I should mention to go just back slightly to the idea of the sacred flame. Um, because everybody contains the sacred flame, because that's the thing we share in common, you know, as opposed to the fact that Will and I are both bald, um, you know, because that there's something deeper and further underneath that we share in common as human beings, that the other things we share or the other things that we do not share are not important. This is, you know, this is the same type of idea, you know, where you have St. Paul saying, um, you know, neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female. You know, that uh, um, the sacred flame is, is what unites us. And because that is the thing that is important, um, other things become completely unimportant. And subsequently, there is no basis to discriminate whatsoever. There is no basis to discriminate whatsoever. Um, male, female, gay, straight, black, white, Canadian. Uh, I love throwing that in there. You know that that the the the, the underlying principle, the the, the the participation of the divine in in literally the physical constitution of man. You know, thoroughly going through all aspects of being. That because that is the thing that unites is important. That all the other things that we would use to divide or make distinction. Um, are irrelevant. The, you know, both the drop and the ocean contain the same H2O nature, so to speak. They're both equally water, even though, you know, um, my water might be more volume, voluminous than Father Tim's, for example. There's, there, is no, there is no physical, um, you know, emotional, mental, any kind of basis with which to discriminate um, between human beings. Except for maybe if you listen to Japanese pop music. Then you're just excluded from salvation after Yes. So that being said, let's roll back to John here. And don't worry, I'm near the end. Beloved disciple as, as a model for discipleship. That's another thing that's significant about the Gospel of John, is that the other Gospels mention the word apostle. You know, one who is sent. John doesn't mention apostles. John mentions disciples. You know, it stresses a more personal relationship, a more direct relationship in a way, as opposed to somebody who is deputized and, you know, uh, thrown into the work. The beloved disciple, and for convenience, I will refer to the beloved disciple as being 
being John, is spiritually decisive. In the gospel, John immediately takes up the call from Christ, so much so that he drops what he's doing right there and then, um, which, which were his nets as, as a fisherman, and followed. He, he recognized the logos and responded immediately, so much so that he left his dad in the boat. Oh, hey! So, <laughs> unfortunately for his father, he, you know, he, he got it right away. John has a willingness to be transformed. Um, in, the, in the early portions of the gospel, John is a very angry man. You know, when, when, when people don't react right to Jesus or to the disciples or the community, you know, he kind of says, Master, shall we call down fire on them and burn them? <laughs> you know, as opposed to, you know, perhaps they might want to sit down and have a coffee and talk about our disagreements. No, it's, can I call down fire and burn them? It's pretty intense, actually. Um, John is described as a son of thunder by Jesus. And I've always taken that to kind of say, well, a pretty angry young man. Uh, together with his brother James. He's got a, you know, so he's got a bit of a temper and he's self-righteous. Um, you know, the, the example, actually the literal example, it says, Lord, do you want us to call down the fire of heaven to destroy them? Now there's a model for ecumenism. <laughs> <laughs> Yet now, John is the beloved disciple. Someone as, you know, as you'll remember from our institutional narrative this morning, is the apostle of fraternal love. You don't go from being an angry young man to being the apostle of love without a willingness to give up, um, to, to give up those things that are holding you back. So a willingness to, to be transformed. There's a, there's a saying, I used to know the Latin for it, but, uh, um, and of course, you know, there's cliches like, you know, uh, uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with, you know, something or other, a lot of coffee. Um, but half is done when the beginning is done. Simply the willingness to say, you know what, I might want to consider a wider perspective. I might want to look at who, who I am, you know. And instead of turning around and, 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 you know, pointing out all the things that may or may not be wrong with the people around us, I might want to take a, a look in the mirror. Um, you know, often, and this, you know, this I'm, I'm stealing from a well-known Buddhist teacher, so if he ever watches this, I hope he forgives me. Uh, you know, nobody walks into a doctor and, and, and says, doctor, what's right with me? You know, so the willingness to be transformed also contains a thorough accounting of the things that you do right. You know, the things that you, that you care for and the things that are important. It is a willingness to look at yourself honestly. And I think somebody like John, our angry young man, is very willing to do that. Uh, holy listening. Um, Jesus in, in the Gospels, in the canonical Gospels, and even occasionally in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, works a lot of miracles. It's a, it's a lot of flash. It's a lot of sizzle. You know, if you didn't believe me before, check this out. John didn't need that. He wasn't transformed by that. He was transformed by listening, by paying attention, by listening to the words of the Logos. He was attentive to the message, that of love, because the, throughout the whole of the Gospel of John, 
other than, of course, you know, the angry bits about members of their former community, there's, a lot, there's actually a lot of love. Um, you know, uh, peace I give to you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give unto you, is, is, the, is actually the extended version of the quote that uh, um, Sister Trish read this morning. There, there is a lot of peace, there is a lot of love. Love one another as, as I have loved you. And that, just like John, we're called to be holy listeners. We're called to give sacred attention to the spiritual journeys of our brothers and sisters, sharing their burdens and being able to share our own in turn. This, this goes hand in hand with being spiritually decisive and being willing to, to be transformed. Um, the beloved disciple was loyal. He was present at the garden and at the cross when everybody else ran away. You know, when, when, when times got tough, um, you know, as, as we know famously, Peter said, that guy? I have no idea who you're talking about. Really, you saw me with this guy. I think you've been snacking on the local mushrooms. Um, Jesus, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Everybody else ran away, literally, for their lives. Um, truth be told, I would probably be Peter. <laughs> I would probably, you know, do Nike Jitsu like nobody's business. John didn't. You know, not only did he not, he was, it wasn't like, you know, he was, he was you know, even front row in, in the crowd. Is that he was, he was up there, um, completely oblivious to everything else, along with the Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, saying, you know what, uh, I'm not going anywhere unless you tell me to go somewhere. Patient. Um, certainly someone who goes from wanting to cast fire down on folks to someone who is leaning on Jesus during the Last Supper um, has learned a bit of calm and patience, not just with the world, but with himself. Humble. If, and, and this we rely on, on tradition more than any kind of scholarly sense of, of who John was, that in the, beginning of the, you know, in the beginning of the Gospel, you have John mentioned by name in all the parts where he is angry, where all the parts where he is frustrated, you know, where he is you know, first following Jesus. But by the time you reach the end of the Gospel, the beloved disciple is only identified as the beloved disciple. Um, not identifying himself by name in the Gospel attributed to him nor did his com community uh, attribute it to him. Serving. The apostle understood the importance of service as exemplified by having Jesus, by, by, by Jesus having him prepare and ready the Passover meal. You know, if, if you, you know, if you want to, if you, of course, we all know the thing, you know, uh, uh, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You know, if you if you want to teach, if you want to lead, you must serve. And uh, the beloved disciple is is willing to break out the covering, which I think is important. Uh, courageous. This this is this is obvious, of course, by looking at the cross. That takes guts. I couldn't do it. Trustworthy. And this this is an interesting thing um, that we're going to go back to. The example here is, of course, you know, at the moment of the crucifixion. The, the Logos, Christ, um, says to John, you know, behold thy mother. I trust you enough to have you look after my own family. 
In other words, you are my family. You are now, you know, you are, this is, you know, uh, son, behold thy mother, mother, behold thy son. son. What does that make John? Jesus' brother. You are family. That's, that's what the trust is about. Uh, contemplative and prayerful. Uh, you know, willing to, in, willing to engage their own path of spirituality, not, you know, not simply be transformed in the church parking lot, so to speak. Um, he went to Mount Tabor with Christ to pray. And, he was at, and the Logos asked him to pray for him on the Mount of Olives and went to the temple to pray in the Acts of the Apostles. Studiousness. John knew the scriptures. In the gospel that bears his name, many references are made to Acts of the Logos that were fulfillment of scripture. You can't say this if you don't know your references. Now, of course, the gospel of John was not literally um, written by John. I mean, it could, you know, written by a community or a series of authors. Um, a series of people who, who have written stuff backwards into it, particularly their own disputes with their parent faith tradition. But at the, at the same time, um, you know, the, the idea of a community that is learned, that is, that is intelligent, that is, you know, actively involved in its own education, uh, enough to, you know, to list its sources, to say, you know what, we've, we've, you know, we've paid attention to the tradition that has gone before us, we've paid attention to those scriptures, and you know, here they are in in harmony with our own. Um, and of course, then there there is the John that is given the title of the theologian, which uh, Dr. Bean could tell you more about. I'm not so good at that kind of thing. Finally, finally, and most importantly, um, love. Every one of these other things: decisiveness, transformation, listening, patience. Loyalty, humility, service, courageousness, trustworthiness. If you have love, you know, as St. Paul might say, well, you have everything else. Behold thy mother. This doesn't only, this, this idea of love doesn't only link Mary to John. It, as I mentioned, it makes John Jesus' brother. They become family. And that, you know, that his disciples, that the Logos' disciples are family. And furthermore, especially in this act where he says, um, son, behold thy mother, mother, behold thy son, that family is who you choose. You choose your family. You choose your community. You choose your friends. You choose your brothers and sisters. As a part of all those other things, as a part of being decisive, as a part of a willingness to be transformed, you make that choice. Your path is yours. Nobody turns around and says, you must do this, other than have an open mind and bring your brain. Um, and in an abrupt ending, that's where I have. So I'd like to uh, take any questions, uh, comments, concerns over my wacky speaking style. Uh, <laughs> any, you know, anything, any questions you have. Um, perhaps not just about uh, the, the topic or, or the tradition, but about the church as well, because I see them as being intertwined. Come on, not even a, what, what's your favorite drink or what kind of music you listen to? <laughs> I just got a question. Okay. Not about what you mentioned, but about the book of Revelation, it's often, well, usually, yeah. been associated in my mind anyway with John. Is that part of the Johannite tradition? 
Absolutely. Did you want to speak on Revelation, the role of Revelation? Sure. Um, I guess I walked in just what I said. Um, the, the book of Revelation uh, traditionally was ascribed to uh, John the Apostle. Uh, but in the Orthodox tradition, I think it's a little clear that there is this division between John the Theologian and, and John the Apostle. And, and I think that probably historically there's good reason to think that these were developed uh, at least by two different authors, if not by two different communities. And I have a tendency to think that it's the same community generating two uh, different texts that both get the name of the leader of the community. Um, there are distinct similarities between the fourth gospel and the book of Revelation in terms of the, the Christology, uh, as long as we read Revelation in a particular way, uh, its roots in Judaic practice, uh, Methodist mysticism, for example, uh, and also just linguistically, just in terms of the way the Greek is written, there are distinct similarities. So I would be, uh, I, I would be loath to kind of separate out the apocalypse from the Joannite tradition. I think it is part of the same community. It is part of the same tradition. Uh, it represents a different kind of spiritual journey than the gospel does. I think the gospel is much more rooted in the historical uh, unfolding of this community, whereas the uh, apocalypse is much more oriented toward the spiritual journey of the individual, uh, toward, toward his or her own apotheosis. Thank you, sir. I think another interesting thing to note is that, you know, particularly when you when you when you take a look at the at the Jonah community, the early Jonah community, which the Eucharist was central enough to have fights over, to have arguments over, um, and then you you look at the liturgy, you look at the mass like we had this morning, and then you read Revelation. Um, symbolically, there's you know it almost reads like the order of liturgy, with you know with the Oh yes, yeah. so you know it has a very um, it has a very you know high and spiritual sense. Of of that kind of of sacrifice, divine in the matter, for example. So I definitely think you know there's a, there's a lot of of uh, there's a lot of connections and there's a lot of things to work with uh, within Revelation. Um, uh, I don't view it as being you know the world come crashing down type of thing, but more as His Grace said, uh, uh, something that reflects our own spiritual path and, and journey in in very uh, in very powerful language. Uh, the Gospel of John is a Greek Gospel. Just uh, the structure of the language is too is too uniquely Hellenic uh, for it to be otherwise. And the amount of the amount of sort of artful use of, of Greek rhetoric and Greek structure and the, and the there are words puns in Greek and the puns on the Greek words. It's, yeah, there yeah. are puns that only make sense in Greek. So. <laughs> Whereas in in Matthew, for example, there are puns that are written in Greek that don't make any sense in Greek, mm. but they make sense in Aramaic. So, so there's indication that that might be a Greek translation of an earlier Aramaic text. It does not seem to be the case here. And would, would the practice tradition be in Aramaic or, and they would be written in Greek, or was there kind of multiple languages? Uh, the, uh, you're talking about the, just the day-to-day -day language of the yeah. original community? Yeah, so I mean, probably was, was heavily Aramaic yeah. um, because That's it is it. coming out of the, the temple and the synagogue tradition. Um, I think the importation of Greeks and, and Greek-speaking Romans 
into the tradition uh, after, you know, uh, about 90 AD, I think does actually change the, the shape of the community in a profound way. So I think that these questions about the language are really, really important because I think that what we think about the community is in part shaped by the language that that community uses to express itself. And you, you can tell when the content of the community changes by when the language changes. Yeah. For example, the thing that, you know, at some point along the way, whereas everybody else, whereas, whereas everybody started off as Jewish, that now they're having to explain Jewish terms. Right. You know, to, and so it, it can't be to Jews because the Jews would have already known that. Yeah, those glosses, rabbi, yeah. which yeah. means teacher. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like saying teacher, which means teacher. You know, yeah. you would never then, have to do that if you're talking. And at the same time, you look in terms of Greek. You look at the fact that right out of the gate, they're saying in the beginning was was the word, the logos, which of course is Greek. So yeah, it's it's Greek in a, in a conceptual way, not just a linguistic yeah. way. Of course, you know, there's a yeah. uh, there's a, a, a Syriac word for for word, you know, but uh, it doesn't have the kind of philosophical ramifications that. Logos does because logos isn't just word. It's word. It's tongue. It's speech. It's language. It's mind. It's reason. It, it's already all of these things by uh, the first century uh, CE. A little, a little twist on that question that I the claim I made yesterday in, in the talk in the morning, um, and I kind of stick by this that it's 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 such artful Greek and it's such beautiful and poetic Greek in the Gospel. At the same time. The thought world of that place and time is is kind of in a in a liminal space between the thought world of the Aramaic world and Semitic language and desert spirituality and the urban Hellenistic thought world and and the Greek language. And I think part of what you what you see in John is the really artful use of Greek linguistic and conceptual precision, carefully deployed to the mind up. In such we'll fix a way that, that in post. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> to uh, break the mind open. Is that better? We catch that, right? <laughs> <laughs> to break the mind open um, in such a way that it approximates the the kind of thinking that's more characteristic of desert spirituality. So, for instance, the the use of symbol and metaphor, but multiple symbols and metaphors to point to the same thing. So it's totally about this, and then the next chapter, actually it's completely about this other thing, which is quite a different image. And the, and the two things, when placed in against each other, kind of open up a, a large transcendent space. So, yes, Greek, but. But the language, the, the Greek language that's deployed in the, the fourth gospel is, is just so gorgeous. It's, it is beautiful poetry. So, and that, that prologue, you listen to it in Greek, is just gorgeous. Historically, the suspicions can be formed strong hold geographically. Like, we know Rome became part, Greek became part, people today survive enough as a community to, to become a strong point or uh, that's a tough that's a that's a tough question to, to answer. Because we know in a general term where, you know, the Joannines, so to speak, um, went and where they existed. It's just hard to say which side of that split existed where, but uh, without a doubt the, the followers of John, um, you know, traditionally at least, um, are all in Asia Minor, Ephesus. Yeah. Ephesus, Smyrna, um, you know, all, you know, Turkey. 
basically. Which connects it, of course, back to the question of Revelation, because Revelation has this frame dialogue where there's the letters to the seven churches. And those yes. seven churches are all in Asia Minor. They're all in Anatolia and Turkey. Yeah. I'm planning on visiting one day. I conclave in Ephesus. Yes, absolutely. It's a bit of a ruin, but you know, I'm sure it's pitch tent If they have kangaroo, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to suggest we continue questions over coffee. Sure. And okay. take a break if that's cool. Can I um, just suggest that we thank his eminence for that wonderful call? Here, here in the headlights.